Welcome to the Novice No Longer Podcast, episode 28. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dan from, of course, the Novice No Longer Podcast. And today we are talking about storytelling and more specifically, how to use storytelling while developing your apps and thinking about your apps in order to create a bigger user base and keep people more engaged. To Joining me today is Donna Licha. She is such a fascinating person. Really, like this this interview is awesome. Um, she's an adjunct professor at NYU. She's worked with so many different companies, including Seamless, City, Bloomberg, Atlantic Records, like the list goes on to the Fortune 500s. And she does consulting. She works with products and building better products. And she really talks a lot about storytelling because for her uh, undergrad and grad school in college, she studied filmmaking. And that has had a huge impact on her career and her success and her ability to both build and help other people build just amazing products. So she shares her insights there. Uh, it's awesome. We also talk about teaching because she's at NYU and how it helps you to learn the things that you're learning. Um, and also working with a personal assistant, which is absolutely fascinating to me. And she just recently got a personal assistant. So she shares some of her insights about working with somebody, letting go, and how she is using that to benefit herself. But I kind of want to jump into storytelling a little bit because I actually recently read the book. Uh, it's called Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath, which is all about creating stories that stick and, and something that somebody is going to actually remember rather than just forget. And the book starts off a very interesting way. And uh, they tell a story. It's an urban legend. And I know I'm going to absolutely butcher the story. But as soon as I start telling it, you're going to recognize it because that's just how sticky, uh, as Chip and Dan would say, that's just how sticky this story is. So it's, uh, it's a man, he's on a business trip, and he's having a drink in the hotel bar when a gorgeous woman, brunette, walks up to him and offers to buy him a drink. And He's shocked. He's like, yeah, of course. And they proceed to talk through the rest of the night. But the man, he forgets what happens. And the next thing he knows, he wakes up and he is in the bathtub in his hotel room. And next to the bathtub is a telephone along with a note saying, I took your kidney. Call 911 now. And he looks down and he sees a huge cut on his stomach that's been stitched closed and it's all red. Why is that story so familiar to us? Why, like halfway through that story, did you know exactly where this was going and what was going to happen? It all has to do with creating a sticky story and following a specific story arc. And the coolest thing about storytelling is it doesn't just apply to fables and stories that you're telling people. It can also be used directly in the products that you're building and the experiences that you're trying to let your users have. So Donna shares some amazing insights in here. The most valuable is, unfortunately, it's at the very end. So uh, definitely get to that point or skip to that point uh, and listen to it because she talks about how to actually use the story arc in an example app that I talked about. And it, it was just amazing. But the entire talk is great. You're going to find a lot of value in it. I'm going to stop talking now and just jump right into this interview because it's fantastic. Here you go. It's Donna Lichaw.
This is Dan with the Novice No Longer podcast, and I am here with Donna Lichaw. And I, I kind of want to start off by kind of introducing you a little bit here, because your LinkedIn profile says that you help businesses figure out what digital products should do and the best ways to make that happen. And I know you've worked with companies like Seamless, City, Bloomberg, Atlantic Records, and a bunch of other big names. And you're also an adjunct professor at NYU, which I have a lot of questions for you about. But I think the most important thing here is to ask you kind of how you describe yourself and what you do. So, um, first of all, I'm very, very happy to be here and excited to chat with you. And I'm really glad that you asked this question about how I describe what it is that I do, because it's a, it's a topic of conversation that has come up with, uh, with me and a, a lot of my colleagues lately, where we realize that a lot of these funny names that we have, titles like user experience, product, even, no one knows what they mean outside of our, our little insular technology spheres. So, um, for example, uh, my, my brother, who you would say is in charge of giant technology projects for a giant consulting firm, when I use the word product with him, he, he his first reaction was, you mean like a crib? Yeah, I need help with that, <laughs> putting together a crib. So, you know, I've had to basically start figuring out how to use language that, that other people use because my clients, for example, they might not know the difference between product and UX or who knows what else, but what they do know is that they have a problem with something and that they need help with that problem. And so typically the problem is something like a business or an organization is trying to launch a new digital product. So something like a website or an app or software and is trying to figure out either how to get it out the door quicker or to just make sure that it's something that customers or community members actually need. And if not to, to regroup, um, a lot of times I help businesses figure out products that are out there in the market and not doing well, figure, figure out why, why are they not doing well and how can we have small, tiny little changes to, to make it more successful in, in the immediate future. So, uh, it's kind of a long winded way of saying I help people figure out <laughs> what, what digital products should do and uh, help them build them as well. So they have a problem like, I want to get people to use this new app, or they have a problem like we have an app and nobody is using it. We need to get people to use it or, or different things like that. And then you come along and kind of assess the situation and help them get uh, like achieve their goals. Yeah. I mean, it could be, so one example is just like that. We have, we have an app and barely anyone's using it. Why is that happening? How do we make it so that people actually love this thing and and maybe even tell their friends about it? Um, the flip side of that is we have an idea for an app, but we're not really sure we can get funding for our grand vision. And we don't even know if it's anything anyone wants. So how can we go about crafting um, something that's that's small and measurable that we could launch in a few months that uh, we're pretty certain that the market actually wants? So mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah, a couple of different scenarios. And so interesting for anybody listening here, because um, I think when most people think about working with like, big corporations and making apps and having like mainstream appeal, it can be kind of difficult to 
conceive because you're like, well, this is a corporate app. Who's going to like be downloading this random like company's app? But the the thing that's really interesting to me is this weekend I was watching TV and there was a commercial for the Walgreens app. And with Walgreens, they have their rewards program, and they have a, a new system where they tie in your steps. So how active you are is tied to getting Walgreens points, and with Walgreens points, you get actual discount coupons. And they actually showed a picture of a Fitbit on there, and I'm like, I use Fitbit. I want to get free stuff from Walgreens. So I went into the app store, and I found their app, and they have four and a half stars and thousands of reviews. Like People love the Walgreens app, and that is something that you can do and especially with the right person on the case and working on it like that's really what it's all about is walgreens wanted to expand this program and they brought on somebody that did it correctly and people actually love the app i know i mean and and that's the thing in terms of brand loyalty and just getting customers excited and engaging more with your business, which is usually why people will do things like uh, launch an app. There are really great ways to come up with ideas. And a lot of times it's someone internally who has just this idea, Hey, what if, you know, we tapped into your Fitbit and gave you points, but the best thing to do is, is, you know, not probably not go launch the app, spend eight months building it and then realize that, uh Oh, nobody cared which I've seen happen many, many times, but there are really solid ways that most likely Walgreens did this, that you can just go out, talk to your customers and really make sure that you're on the right path and then quickly just get it out the door. And it's, it, it, I mean, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And that's, that's so important that you actually test this stuff before spending so much money. Cause I'm sure they spent so much money on this entire initiative. Um, but before we get into that, I, I'm kind of late to this question, but I always start off the interviews by asking my guests, how did you get to where you are today? Like what path did you take to doing this consulting and problem solving with these fortune 500 companies? Sure. So the funny thing is in terms of, um, how, how I got to where I am, I didn't start off working in, in tech. I was, um, a documentary filmmaker and it was something that I always loved. I never really expected that I would do for any kind of full-time job, but I, uh, I had a friend before I went to college who gave me this, this great advice. One time, I think I was asking what I, what I should study. And, um, and she had already had graduated college and, and her answer was study whatever is fun. Just don't expect that you'll ever work in that field necessarily. And so I figured, all right, cool. I'll do film and hopefully I can apply it to something else someday. And during college and then um, uh, grad school as well, where I, for some reason, studied film all over again, uh, I always worked as a, at the time, it was web designer and project manager, producer. I was always working in tech, doing uh, techie, webby things. And it was, um, you know, when I, when I graduated, it was kind of, there's insanity for me to think in terms of, well, I could work for free in the film industry or I could uh, continue to work in tech and have a job when I leave school, which is so rare to have a job. Yeah, it is. When you leave school, right? So basically I um, uh, kind of applied all of the stuff that I learned to film school to building digital things. And I feel like it's almost the best education uh, anyone working in tech could ever get. But um, I these days especially, um, am doing 
almost more filmy stuff than than ever before uh storytelling in particular but it's it's kind of um it's kind of fascinating how much you can transfer from documentary and even fiction to um to creating awesome experiences that people enjoy that's that's so interesting that you say that like approaching it from the aspect of a documentary filmmaker in particular and i actually i i'm a movie lover but i never actually studied it so i'm curious the relationship between like documentary filmmaking or storytelling as you said as it relates to like these brand stories and ux because when you go into a documentary do you kind of have a hypothesis an idea of where it's going and then you do the interviews and then it kind of forms from there and is that sort of the same process that you've been able to apply to these product and ux problems that you've been faced with Absolutely. So when you're creating a documentary, the process, the production process is actually very similar to, um, to the discovery process on a design project. So the same way you would go out and start interviewing people for your documentary, you would interview your customers and find out more data and you then synthesize it into if you're working in tech some kind of um maybe a persona or maybe just you have like a written document of okay these are what our customer needs but with uh documentary you probably then create a script out of it and the interesting thing about documentary filmmaking is um that uh, I was actually just thinking about this today. The, I got into grad school with this this essay talking about how documentary film was a narrative art and it wasn't really objective and it was just a different kind of storytelling. And um, I, I think the same thing about the digital products that we craft. It's just instead of crafting movies like I used to, I use the same techniques to craft intended experiences with things like websites, software, apps, um, any digital things that, that people use. And actually even not non-digital project came up recently that was for a, a physical space, a building. And it's, it's all the, the, the same thing. There's a clear structure to a good experience. And it's usually what in, in film we call the narrative arc. It's, um, and there are a lot of psychological principles behind it, but there are ways that humans really get wrapped up and sucked into things, and there's no reason why we can't use the same techniques for for tech products. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, because you're just trying to create an experience in your viewer, whether that person is viewing viewing a film or uh, an experience that you've crafted through an online or a digital product. It's all about, like, being able to evoke certain emotions and allow them to have a certain experience. Absolutely, and I think the word evoke is really an awesome word to use because I know this, this kind of question comes up a lot, which is, well, can we control the experience? Can we determine how people perceive things? And the answer of course is no. And it's the same thing with film. You have, we have no control of how people in the end experience what it is we create, but we do have control in how we craft it and craft the consumption of this thing over time. And there are certain tricks in, in film. It's called the formulaic when it's using the formula and the formula is obvious, but when it's good, it's still using the formula. We just don't, (laughs) don't notice it. And so again, same thing for, for any 
digital things that need to engage people. Yeah. If we don't need to engage them, it's totally cool. Then a lot of these techniques wouldn't really apply. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. That, make, that per- makes perfect sense. The connection is like spot on right there. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about teaching because you've been teaching from like the beginning um, uh, of your professional career life. That's something that you always do. So I wanted to ask, uh, how do you view teaching as it relates to your professional life and the other stuff you've got going on? So, yeah, I've been teaching for many, many, many years. I started teaching at Northwestern when I was in grad school and then taught at, um, at Parsons and NYU and actually be back at Parsons this fall, which is really exciting. And what I found was uh, kind of twofold. First, it was really shocking to me when I first started teaching to realize how much I actually knew that I didn't know that I knew. I think I was afraid that teaching was going to be this sort of experience where I had to answer all the students' questions and I had to always have the right answer. And on the one hand, I had a lot of answers that I didn't know I had, which was pretty cool. So I feel like teaching kind of made me smarter and a little more self-aware. And I also realized that it's a great way to facilitate uh, groups of people. And I still, I do this with my clients. I do this with teams that I lead. And, and when I coach teams is that you, you don't tell people what to do. Human psychology, it's the laws of physics. You, there's going to be equal and opposite force counteracting whatever you tell people what to do. But if you ask lots of questions or if you respond to a question with a question, people tend to answer their own questions. They tend to realize they know more than they knew and they tend to solve their own problems. And it's just that external force, which is what a teacher is, and a consultant as well, sometimes, well, when it's done right, I think, uh, that outside perspective really helps the other party see, see clearly and, and learn a lot. So it's kind of, again, twofold. I realize, wow, I'm, I know more than I thought I knew, and uh, I can facilitate large groups of people, and they can do awesome things with my help. That's awesome. Um, it, my very first, like, Novice No Longer, before it was actually a website, before I was doing anything, I created a workshop just on my own about how to make iPhone apps without learning how to code. And I've been teaching, I taught that in New York City about once or twice a month for about two years. And just like you you said, when I went into it, I was like, I've gone through this process before. I know what I did. I I can teach that. But I I didn't realize like how much information that I knew. And it also helped me realize like what I didn't know and what I could research and help them. And it it was an entire process. It was just an amazing experience that helped me know the stuff that I knew even better than I knew before. Yeah. It's a, an incredible way to find that out. It, it, it's um, funny because I, when I was in grad school, I had a professor who was teaching a class on, um, I think Heidegger, she was doing a seminar on Heidegger. And I asked her one day, why, why are you teaching a class on Heidegger? What is it about Heidegger that you like enough to teach a class Um, and her answer was, oh, I've never read any Heidegger. I just wanted to learn about Heidegger. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) That's pretty fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I, at first I thought, oh my God, this place has problems. And I realized, why not? Why not? Yeah. Especially with with certain classes like that, it's, it's a, 
group experience where you're all helping and when you have students that are actually engaged with the stuff, it, it really can be just a learning experience for everybody with a proper facilitator. Absolutely. And, you know, that's an extreme example yeah. of perhaps not everyone <laughs> as a Red Heidegger should teach classes on Heidegger. But, you know, there's something to say for learning while you're, while you're teaching and students appreciate it and are always very cool with that. So what is your process for forming your lesson plans? Or there's a class you want to teach, like, what do you do to help form that into a class? So the way that I form lesson plans, it's actually how I started realizing that story arcs should be structuring digital uh, or experiences with digital things. What um, I always do essentially when I craft a lecture and it's crafting a workshop or a class or a lecture, even a talk that I give in front of an audience, like at a conference or at a company, I basically sit down and I map out the entire story of the talk in the form of a narrative arc. And this is something that I should have done in film school uh, both times when <laughs> I went and I, I never did. It's like writing an outline for an essay before getting started. Mm-hmm. Um, in film school, I had a lot of hits and misses. And it was only when I went back and realized that whenever I had a strong narrative arc, the film would win awards or people would love it. But when it didn't, it was a mess. And um, so, yeah, basically I, I structure the talk according to a narrative arc and very simply plug and play and put in all the pieces. And the reason why I make sure that all of my talks and my classes have a strong narrative is because, um, you know, it teaching a bunch of, 20 year old students who got about three hours of sleep the night before you, you find out quickly, you have to keep them engaged. And so kind of what I was thinking several years ago, you know, okay, if this works for engaging movie audiences, why wouldn't it work for my students? And I think it works amazingly for my students. And so then a little while ago, I started thinking, okay, if it works for my students, why wouldn't it work for, you know, the consumers of this product or our customers? And uh, as what, as I found, it definitely works for them as well. So yeah, story, clear story. Otherwise people get bored. Now, how granular do you get with this? Do you try to have a narrative arc to every single lesson or like the course as a whole? Both. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of like, if you think about it, like a, um, uh, like a serial TV show. So think um, Breaking Bad, for example. Actually, I I, uh, always include Breaking Bad as an example when I talk about this, and I have a couple of articles and and posts online that that you or anyone else can, can refer to. But a TV show like Breaking Bad was painstakingly structured across all five seasons and across each season and within each episode. There's always a clear narrative arc in there. Mm-hmm. And so with a class, yeah, the entire course should have a good arc. In other words, the the awesomest, best class in the whole semester, I shouldn't do first and I shouldn't yeah. In the middle, I should always do about three quarters of the way through, so people are so excited and glad they stay stuck with it. And um, yeah, it's just like a good a good serial TV show. Each lecture is also structured that way; otherwise, people start falling asleep, especially when it's a three hour class or a two hour class. 
So yeah, same thing for each class and the entire semester as well. Yeah, that takes a lot of pre-planning to get in there. I don't think people realize like how much work teachers do before ever stepping foot in the classroom. Yeah, it takes a ton of pre-planning. I'm trying to learn the art of planning less, um, getting a little better at it. <laughs> but it uh, it does take a lot of planning. It's 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 insane. I, I yeah, I always forget. Yeah, on the topic of trying to make your life easier, uh, you mentioned to me that you recently got a personal assistant. And this is very interesting to me because it's something that I've been playing around with too. I've been reading a little bit about it. I know that uh, there's an online entrepreneur named Chris Ducker who who has a service that is outsourcing um, virtual assistants. And he uses he just launched a book and his website to promote his service, which matches entrepreneurs with personal assistants. But I, I'm just always so interested to see how people work with other people who are helping them. So what has uh, your experience been like working with a personal assistant? So the experience with the personal assistant has been really, 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 really amazing and eye-opening. I, at some point last year, realized that I was spending so much time doing certain things that I actually love to do, like research, little research projects, or maintaining spreadsheets. I actually love spreadsheets. <laughs> I could spend all day in a spreadsheet and have a lot of fun with that. But it was all these things that weren't actually leading directly to business, or if they were, they weren't um, a good use of my time, and that I was starting to spend more than a fifth of my time working on these things. And that means that was basically time I wasn't spending with actual clients and doing other things like writing. And so I finally... I think I ran into an old, uh, old colleague one day and I, I mentioned this problem that I had and, um, I didn't really want to get an assistant, but he told me that he had an assistant that he shared with a few other people who was remote and she was awesome and so helpful and that it changed his life. And so I figured, okay, <laughs> I'll work with her <laughs> and this will be great. Let's try it out. And, um, it's been great. It's been about six months and it's, uh, on and off some, some weeks I don't have any projects. Sometimes I do. And, and it's, uh, it's for the most part been, been so great to basically unload the things again that I would love to do, but that I, uh, I just don't have time to do the things that I don't love to do, I still have yet to figure out how to outsource those and <laughs> like uh, simple, but not bookkeeping, but you know, pestering clients about payment and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that unfortunately I think I will always have to do myself for now, unless I get, you know, a staff eventually. Yeah. But So what kind uh, of, ta- what kind yeah, of tasks does the assistant do? Well, so it's a, a combination of, of things. So, um, one task, for example, which was super, super helpful, I was trying to put together a list of conferences to apply to because I, um, uh, yeah, I realized I just, I kept hearing about conferences when they were too late 
uh, when it was too late to apply. Also, I was finding out about conferences that actually my colleagues might be organizing, and I just might not have spoken to them in a while, didn't realize they were organizing, and so something just wasn't quite fitting right in terms of how I could find out about what was going on. And I, um, uh, it was it took a couple of weeks, but I started started a list of conferences and then I gave my assistant a few resources and a few subject areas and I had her um, basically just create a giant spreadsheet of, of conferences and uh, and then you know a whole bunch of metadata associated with with each one and and action items she still pesters me about some action items which is really great because I need people to pester me <laughs> but um, yeah the, I mean the best thing is is that that list turned into something when I realized the kind of what an amazing list it was and what a great resource it was. I ended up posting it, uh, online on my blog and that blog post is, is still one of my most popular blog posts ever. It was sort of a call to action for, um, specifically women and people who aren't represented at tech conferences very often to just get out there. And, uh, yeah, the, you know, I figured, I mean, I guess it's the thing personal assistant or not, something that's so awesome, especially if someone else helped me build it, I may as well share with everyone. Mm -hmm. So yeah, things, things like that. It's really helpful. I think that's so important too, because I I've wanted to start attending more conferences myself and uh, there are tools out there. Like I know that there's one called lanyard, which is supposed to be like the conference Mecca or whatever it is, but it's always kind of confusing to me anytime I spend time on there. So having somebody that's kind of going through based on my set parameters and giving the information that I find valuable, what I, I need, or for your instances, for, uh, in your instance, this is what you are doing is super valuable. And it's something that you might not sit down and spend hours doing yourself, but actually having that information is, is super valuable and it's valuable for others as, as you were able to prove. Definitely. I mean, if Lanyard, uh, you know, had a different business model, they could, they could be getting my money instead of my assistant. Mm-hmm. And because basically that was the biggest resource she used, she spent weeks scouring through Lanyard, which, as you said, is very uh, a little confusing, a little, a little difficult to navigate. So, yeah, it's a great resource, though. Mm-hmm. So, before you kind of brought on uh, this personal assistant, did you like sit down and write down a list of tasks that you wanted to have them do, or that you didn't mind? Uh, outsourcing or was there any kind of like, okay, well, this is a recurring thing that I'm going to free up my time. What was your process like? So the process, it, it did look a lot like that. Most of the things that I need help with are, I, I would f- kind of, uh, they would fall under the category of, of biz dev or business development. And it's things that um, uh, I had basically, a giant list of all these little things that I wanted to do that I just didn't have time to, to do. And so I, um, yeah, basically just with her started chiseling away at that list, which was, um, really, really very cool and, and helpful too, because the type of work that I do, most of my work is, is on site with clients. I do a lot of, as I was mentioning, a lot of team facilitation and team coaching, or even when I lead projects or if I'm teaching an on-site workshop or training, whatever it is, it's all, it's all on-site and it's with the client. I always make sure I involve them. And there's very 
work that clients pay me to do that I do on my own, uh, you know, at a computer away from them. And so, um, it's, you know, it's funny paying someone to help out with things that I'm not getting directly paid for, but I feel like it's such a common thing where a lot of us who are independents, we have these giant lists of all these things that wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice to do, you know, Mm. you might put it in a parking lot or a uh, nice to do list or whatever you call it, but it's just, uh, it's biz devy things. Mm -hmm. No, I know that they weren't things that you were really doing uh, a lot of these tasks, but did you have any problem like letting go or kind of giving control of these individual tasks over to somebody else? Absolutely. I I hate it. I hate letting go. (laughs) (laughs) I, especially when it's a fun research project, I, um, I love research. I, you know, would love to spend a few hours online you know, bouncing around on, on lanyard or, uh, trying to think of another example. Um, you know, uh, Oh, this was a, a, a fun project. I needed space to host a workshop in New York city. And I just, I needed to know what the lay of the land was. And so that took, it took a good amount of time really to just find all of the spaces for hosting a workshop in the city. And I wanted to do it myself. It, that I love that stuff. I think mm-hmm. it's fun. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, for me, it's, it's hard outsourcing when it feels like something that would be fun, but it's also hard, hard to outsource when you're worried a little bit about quality control. And that's where it, it helps to have someone who you really trust. Maybe you can do a couple of test projects with and just make sure that you're getting the results that you, you need. But, uh, I, I, with the assistant I work with, I mean, the results are always awesome. So it makes it much easier for me to just relinquish control and let her, let her at it and let her come up with some crazy things. And she always comes up with ideas that I never even thought of in the first place. So Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's nice to give up control, I think. And it's so nice to have somebody like that. But like you were saying, you you don't always have that for quality control. If I ever have like a big project or I have something that's like, okay, we'll find all of these venues that are good. I'll be like, okay, here's a couple examples. Do me a favor, just do 10 more and then get back to me. I'm going to look those over to make sure that they're a-okay. And then you can continue that way. They're not wasting their time. I'm not spending them for, or paying them for wasted time spent and it it all works out. And uh, for you that it's wonderful. And eventually you find that person where you'd be like, Hey, do this. And then they get it done. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And that's, I mean, I think that's another really, really great strategy, which is just having them do a little come back to you. And I think the, um, you know, I don't know if you found this, but the biggest trick to, for me with this kind of work is, it's actually without sourcing anything, whether it be uh, if I need a little bit of graphic design work or um, some, a little bit of coding or something like that. It's, a matter of actually paying for the services. And I found not always working with friends because mm-hmm. friends want to do things as a favor to you. Friends don't want to charge full rate. Friends will also, you know, 
if they have time, work on this thing. And a lot of times I've seen, um, you know, I used to outsource things to friends and just, they wouldn't get done. And then we all felt guilty about charging or undercharging or underpaying. And it's great when you find someone you trust, but who's also didn't start out as a friend and is, is a, a real third party. Exactly. And, and that's my experience is exactly too. Cause if you have a friend doing something for you and you're like, okay, well I need this done now. You, you can't really <laughs> politely be like, Hey, you're doing this for free, but can you finish it? Um, there's no polite way to say that. I'd much rather like find somebody, offer them money, have them agree to the fee and be like, okay, get this done by this date. And here is your money. Absolutely. So, I, I would definitely uh, not like myself if I didn't ask you questions about UX because that is kind of what you do in the world that you live in. And I was going to say, what is it? I would be remiss. Is that the phrase? I don't even know. So I said, but yeah. I know. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, like, well, we kind of talked about UX a little bit and how it's the entire experience. But when you start taking on like a new existing product, like somebody has something that's not working. They're like, Donna, please help me. What are your first steps? What do you do? Sure. So if an organization comes to me with something that's not working, it, I mean, this is usually how it starts. What I find is, um, it's actually amusing. Oftentimes the, the conversation starts with something like, um, Oh, our product is hard to use. We want to make it better. Or, oh yeah, our checkout flow, it sucks. We want to make it better. And what I find is that most organizations and myself included, even for the, my own things that, that I, I develop and produce, most people have a really hard time thinking in terms of actual metrics and actual measurable things that are wrong that could be better. And so usually the first thing that I'll do working with any clients is typically even before we start working together is really figure out with them what, okay, if, if uh, you're saying that your product is confusing. That's the problem. Why is it a problem? And then we kind of dig a little deeper. So why is it a problem? Oh, because people are signing up and not using your product. Okay. Then continue onward. And why is that a problem? Because that's not a problem in and of itself. If you need people to use your product so that you can grow your user base, okay. So growth is an issue. Uh, if you need active users so that your um, your board can give you more money, okay, that's a specific measurement. Active users. If your model, your business model is um, is is revenue based, and you need active users so that they can then convert to paying customers then that's a different problem. And all of these problems have different solutions. So usually, again, it's all about really, really, really digging in. And I kind of play a therapist and just asking why. Same thing I do with my students. Ask why over and over and over again until we get down to the bottom of what the actual problem is. And once we have an idea of what, what the problem is, usually getting to a solution kind of typically works in the same way where we assess, okay, you want people to do X. Is there anyone who's doing X 
at the moment. And if there are, so you want more people to use your product, who's using it? And then we just go out and talk to them and talk to them until we get answers to why they love the product. And the idea with this type of problem solving is we just want to reproduce the people who love the product and to make more of them. If it's something like a broken checkout flow, then you would kind of do the opposite where you might go talk to people and find out why they're not completing the checkout. And then instead of finding out why people love it, you're finding out what doesn't work. And a lot of times, you know, it could be the interface that's a problem. In other words, they didn't see the checkout button or they kept getting lost. And it could be something more like, um, you know, oh, uh, well, the payment, I didn't, I didn't trust you because you asked for my credit card before I ever actually felt comfortable. And so I, you know, not interested. And, And again, it's all things with simple solutions, but it all comes down to talking to your customers or talking to the people who you want to be your customers and finding out what works for them, what doesn't work, how to reproduce it or how to minimize the problems. And then, uh, coming up with solutions, testing them and, uh, making sure that you feel good about the solutions that you're proposing and then going to build, building them basically. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you talked about e-commerce stuff because E-commerce online and the checkout process is one of the most studied uh, behaviors of users online from like, uh, if anybody hasn't been involved in e-commerce before or what goes on behind the scenes, like from abandoned cart, so you put something in your cart and then you just leave the website and you never bought it. And you might just be like, oh, I'm going to do something else. But the, the retailer is like, what? This person is interested in this item. They want to buy it. They didn't. Why not? And there are so many different like psychological things you can do, like a, a follow-up notification, like, hey, this item you had in your cart, it's now on sale. And you'd get that email like a couple days later. And it, it's so interesting to kind of, I'm, I'm sure for you to observe how everybody's unique shopping experience online kind of matches together with the psychology of stuff that's been written and as well as paired with the actual behavior of the users on that exact site to kind of work out the the proper solution for each business. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of fascinating because the products and services that I've worked on haven't always fallen into standard e-commerce where, as you were saying, there are tons of studies and so much, re- so much research and a lot of rules of thumb and great, great, great techniques and patterns to, to fall back on when in doubt. And when you have some kind of transactional product like the ones that I've worked on that are um, kind of different, they might have a payment flow as part of a big, broader service, or it might be something like, uh, for example, Seamless, where the entire product essentially is one big checkout flow. And so with that, how do you define when checkout actually starts and when, when does it stop? Yeah. And, you know, it's another really great example of something where, um, you know, the actual checkout flow part, the part where you, you enter your address and you pay and you, you, or you confirm your address, you pay and you finish up, you know, an example like Seamless is a perfect example of when to really assess what the problem is because we, um, 
you know, years ago, the, the, the sort of statement that everyone made when I was working with them was, oh, our checkout is not so user-friendly. We want to make it better. And so we worked for a really long time to make it better. And then we realized, wait a minute, the conversion rate for that checkout flow is amazing. And you know what? No one on the business side has any problem with that. <laughs> so actually getting resources to improve the checkout flow, it didn't happen because you know what? There wasn't a problem. But if you have, let's say, a brand problem or you're getting customer complaints and it's a customer service problem, it's a totally different way to quantify things. And then it becomes a different problem to solve and one that you, you typically will get funding for at an organization because it's a known problem. But again, if there's no problem to solve, then there's no reason to you know, go about changing things. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So it, that was kind of your process for uh, coming into an existing uh, problem people are having with either their website, their flow, their app, whatever, and kind of figuring out how to fix it. Is the process any different? Because it's all about kind of research and figuring it out and seeing el- who else is doing what you want to do. But is the process different for people that want to launch a new product? Yeah, so what I typically find is the process is a little bit different when you want to launch a new product versus an existing product. And the only difference is if you have a cycle, I mean, I think you always need to have a a full cycle, whether it's in tiny day-long, week-long, or month-long increments, that's all good, but some kind of build measure learn cycle where you build something, you measure how effective it is, or you just see how it does. And then you find out what you learned from it so that you can then build a new. And if there is an existing product, then probably you've already built something. And the first thing you can do is start measuring. So if you have any analytics or data, then you know, dig into the data. And then I also make sure that every team I work work with goes out and starts talking to customers or community members. And uh, at least I want them to talk to five, five people from any group. And you start uncovering, okay, why, you know, the whole why thing I was talking about earlier, what's the problem? Why is this the problem? And you, you dig down even further and then you figure out what you learn and then you build solutions to, to fix it. When the product has not been launched yet, typically what I find is that you need to make sure you know your customer's before you start building anything. However, a lot of organizations, especially startups, don't want to spend even a few weeks talking to customers before building anything. And so it's totally possible to build a little prototype and talk to your customers at the same time. And at that point, you're kind of mashing up all the the cycles and you're learning and it's a little bit of chaos, but it's only a few weeks of chaos and the results are far, far, far better than just spending eight months building something that no one wanted in the first place, which I've seen a, a lot of. So again, pretty much the same process, same philosophy, same techniques for something completely new versus something that's uh, being updated, but, um, but slightly different approaches and it's, it's a little bit nuanced. 
So you're talking about minimum viable product and like building the the kind of most basic form of the idea that you can then get out there, have people use, and then test whether your idea is actually going to catch on or not, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the the minimum viable product in whatever form it takes to learn what you need to learn to move on to the next step. And so sometimes that MVP could be a series of questions it often starts taking the form of some kind of prototype that could be if it's an app or a website it might be a paper prototype or something a little more fleshed out or sometimes when i've worked on on services that are actually touch point agnostic meaning it might be an app it might be a website but it kind of doesn't have to do with is it an app or a website will actually prototype conversations and have potential customers come in and actually interact with with the team or the service provider and and have a little improv session where we're able to better understand okay in this 45 minutes dear customer did you get any value out of this and is this something you would ever use in the future if there were an app that did this mm-hmm. and um so you don't even need tech tech or paper half the time to to test out these ideas. Yeah, and so because your minimum viable product doesn't have to be a website. Because I think people think, okay, I'm going to launch my minimum, especially in the app world, because it's a lot easier with websites to kind of have skeletons. But if you have an app, you need to kind of have something there in order to launch your app. But there are so many different ways that you can test your idea before you even spend a penny on development or anything. And, and being able to do that and kind of view that as your minimum viable product for testing your idea is super important to the development process. Absolutely. And this is actually how I first started using story arcs and, and narrative structure in, in product design, where I realized that, um, you know, so one, okay, I was using it to engage my students and yay, it was wonderful. But what I also realized is that a really solid narrative structure for a proposed product or feature or even anything like a landing page or um, any kind of uh, entire content strategy, the narrative structure is an amazing hypothesis to put forth and quickly and rapidly test an idea so that you learn immediately, does this make any sense. And the thing about the narrative arc is that every story starts out with the, at the early on, there's always a problem. And the story is all about solving that problem in interesting ways that get more exciting over time and then finding resolution. And there's, you know, that's a totally simplified version of it. But if you can basically fit an idea for let's say you have an existing uh existing brand or product and you want to add a new feature to the the app or the software the website if the feature has a clear story arc you're more likely to have success with it and that's at least what i found and you're able to also structure conversations with your customers and you're even able to sell the thing later on because it's clear how it fits into people's lives people you know don't use things that they don't have problems with whether they know it or not even the 
iPod solved a problem that people had. Mm -hmm. So kind of to pull this all together, um, and I think that the answer might involve formulating story arcs, but I kind of wanted to ask you, if somebody that's listening to this has an idea for an app or a product, it hasn't been made, they haven't tested it, they're just like, I know, I, I, they know that this will work, but they, they want to know the best first steps that they can do to kind of prove their idea. What would you tell them to do? Sure. So if someone's got a completely new idea, the, the thing I would really ask them to do is um, it's the question I always ask my students and I ask my clients when they're starting out from, from scratch and um, it's it simply, so me asking in this case, simply asking, what's the story? And if you're able to come up with a clear, cohesive story of what on earth this thing is, why anyone would use it, and how it fits into people's lives, you're more likely to then be able to move on to the next step and start fleshing it out and figuring out, all right, how how is this going to work, and possibly going talking to potential customers, making sure that it's something that they want, that your story wasn't just complete fantasy, because that happens too, but it's it's really that idea of, of what is what is the story and making sure that that story is grounded in your potential customers and just not made up. No, when you're talking about your app's story, what do you mean? Like, for example, I'm working with a friend of mine, and we had an idea for a stupid, simple app just to like get some experience in. And basically, if you're in an unfamiliar city, but all you want is to eat some familiar food. So you're hungry. You don't want to find like a local whatever restaurant. You're like, I just want a Chipotle or I, I just want whatever is familiar to you. You can just open this app and it shows you where the closest ones are around you. Now, would a story be like the story of a particular user that's going to be using it? Is it the app's story itself? Like, what do you mean by story? Sure. So in this case, the story would be a story of a user using it, but you might never mention the user at all. And so when it's something is at the really broad level of an entirely new product and you want to know if it makes sense at all, the story might read something like an elevator pitch. And so it's typically the story arc diagram would start off with usually at the beginning, all is good in the world. And so that's just about knowing what what exists, who your customer might be. Then there's a problem. So it's just outlining like you just did what the specific problem is. In other words, um, you know, I'm in a strange city, but I want something that's familiar. Now, the actual story starting to be fleshed out is a uh, kind of like an elevator pitch where you just in this case you would just describe what the product is and how it works and every story every good story usually has some kind of crisis moment that happens near near the end and it's near the best part of the entire story and so like in a buddy movie that's when the two uh the two buddies always get into a giant fight and you're wondering what's going to happen next, and then something really cool happens, and then the movie ends. But in this case, the crisis would be, okay, what would ever counteract this story from completing itself? In other words, what forces are fighting this uh, you know, potential customer using this device? And so a crisis might be, um, well, I'm in a strange city, 
I want something familiar, um, but I already have Yelp and I don't want to download a new app. Yelp is good enough. Or, oh, I'm just going to look up Google Google Maps and do a search, or I'm just going to pull up Force. So that's kind of the crisis to think about in an elevator pitch. You'd often phrase it as, uh, you know, unlike product X, our product does X, Y, and Z. And in the story, X, Y, and Z is, is what we call your climax. It should be the coolest part of this app. And it's got to be the reason why people are going to get really excited about it. Because just solving people's problems isn't that exciting. Because, you know, Yelp, it already solves people's problems. Foursquare does it in another way. What about your product or service is totally, totally awesome? Like in a good movie, like just a real high point. And then uh, that's pretty much it for this high level. It's just getting you to ask yourself the right questions and to figure out um, in business terms, it's what we call value. Just, you know, what is the value proposition? What is the, who's the market? What problems do they have? And, and, you know, things like that. So I don't know if that makes any sense. It's kind of a, I often uh, teach this in, in a half-day workshop, so in three hours it makes sense, but <laughs> in a couple of minutes, I'm sure it sounds all crazy. No, no, that, that's wonderful. And I think, uh, at least for me, I remember studying a little bit about the, the story arc and the narrative arc and that kind of stuff back in school, so it's all coming back to me, and it, it's so true, and this, this was really, really helpful. Thank you so much. So, sure. Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, again, thank you for coming on the show. If anybody listening wants to find you, get in contact with you, how can they do that? So, the best way to find me and contact me is through my website. It's greatnorthelectric.com. And you can also find me on Twitter, and that is at D-L-I-C-H-A-W. So it's just my first initial and last name. Awesome. And I'm going to put both of those in the show notes. You guys know that's novicenolonger.com. And uh, Donna, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Dan. This was great. I think I'm going to sit down now with the project that I'm currently working on and see how I can apply the narrative arc to everything. This was such such valuable information and it's totally inspired me. If you feel inspired too, please go onto iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review. Check me out at novicenolonger.com for a bunch of other content and I will see you next week.